Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. James 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 5 today, but first, uh, let us read our context. We're going context. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 13. Remember that we are in the context of receiving wisdom, and thus he's describing what wisdom should look like. But he's also warning us against earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. He's now shown to us some of these marks of anti-wisdom, the opposite of it. But as we read in today's passage, we are going to come to some conclusions that those that think that they are wise uh, but they're actually claiming earthly wisdom, have some major problems. Today we will see a very grim picture of anti-wisdom. Not only will James describe it for us, but he'll reveal just how devastating it is to those who hold to anti-wisdom. He'll show us God's perspective of a person who lives in the foolishness of the world and what the effects are. So, let us begin in chapter 3, verse 13 through four or five. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not, excuse me, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Let us take these sacred words and ask God to guide us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we quiet our hearts in worship to you, submitting ourselves to the word, Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit, who is the only one who can give life. Our flesh is no help at all. We call to you and ask you, as we've approached your throne, to come and work in us, to break down our stony hearts and to trust you. I pray that you give our hearts the ability to hear and see and obey, to receive with meekness the implanted word. We thank you for your text today. We thank you for our brother James. And we ask that he would preach to us and we would hear and we would repent and we would trust you and we would glory only in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We love you, and we, we, we simply ask you to work, God. We cannot do this thing, so we call on you to work in us. Give us humility, give us faith, and as James prays, or asks the people to pray in verse five of chapter one, give us wisdom. We ask you for it, God. We don't have it in and of ourselves, so we ask you, give us wisdom, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Last, last week, James asked those that said that they had wisdom, they said that they had wisdom, to stand up and prove it. We talked about how this kind of mirrored back to the idea of having faith in works and that you needed to prove it. Here's the same thing. We found out that this could only happen by a person working out their wisdom by works of wisdom in humility, not jealousy or selfish ambition. James led us to the garden where the fruits of righteousness grow. He led us there, and we see that it's a garden of peace. Uh, we, we realize that he made a point to show that true wisdom is humble, it is gentle, it is open to reason, and it's ready to make peace. The wise gardeners, hopefully us, the wise gardeners will only sow righteous living if they are peacemakers, if that's what characterizes them. They are the ones who make peace. Today, James will address... <laughs> the current lack of peace in these congregations. There is an apparent problem here. There is a lack of this peace that he just talked about. He will turn to them, point the finger, explain what's going on in their hearts, and point out why it's wrong before God. And then he is going to blast them for their foolishness. He aims to show them a very grim picture of anti-wisdom, or as the Bible calls it, foolishness. It is a demonic wisdom that stupidly treasures the same things that the world treasures. This is not, by the way, a feel-good message if you haven't gotten it so far. I'm sorry if you came for the positive, encouraging message. That's not what you're going to get today. Today we need to see the awful reality of sin, how it affects other Christians that we are in contact with, and how it affects our relationship with God. However, like many of the prophets, my job is not here to cast despair on us. The reality is, when we see these things, today we do not lead us to despair, but rather it leads us to submission and humility. Because surely there is hope in Christ. So let's begin, let's look at verse 1 through 3 together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here is James, our master order, and he is coming to us to not tell us something or ask a question about what's actually going on. He assumes it. He knows what's going on, these fights and these wars among themselves. He assumes that everyone knows, and he jumps right to the details. The wording is really clear. He asks, where do these quarrels and where do these fights come from? In fact, it's actually a little bit clearer than that. This is a smoothed out version. I'd say it's a little harsher. The actual words that he uses are these. James says, where do the wars and where do the battles between you all come from? Notice, he, what he's trying to do is consider the source of these things, but the words he uses for disagreements or disunity is pretty strong. He calls them wars 
and battles. Not misunderstandings, not little tiffs or run-ins, wars and battles. These aren't words meant to describe the specific actions like they're taking out swords and hacking each other to pieces. That's not what he's trying to do here, but rather this language is used to describe the severity of what they are doing in the eyes of God. We're getting a picture of how God sees the way that they are interacting. He sees it as those who are warring, those who are battling it out. Again, James is describing the devastating effects that this type of disunity and quarreling have on people, specifically his people. It is like there is war and battles plaguing his congregations. Not many of us here have really lived through an intense war zone. I would guess probably none of us. But some of the men and women in this room do serve in our armed forces, and we thank you for that. But a few of them have felt the severity of war. They understand its effects. Probably even fewer, though, have known the gruesomeness of actual battle. Much of our modern battles, of course, are, are fought a little bit differently, but that doesn't make it any less terrible. Wars are tiring, discouraging, long, draining, they're difficult, they hurt. Battles themselves are bloody, exhausting, horrific. The things that come out of them take a great toll on the people and what's going on that are actually engaged in these wars. PTSD is real. Uh, the loss of a physical limb or ability is real. The loss of life and livelihood is real. All these things are showing the realness and the severity of war and battles. It's real for both those that go into battle and those that stay home to keep the fires burning and wait for that person to come back or maybe not come back. War and battles are brutal. This is how James describes the, the church that is undergoing disunity, that is having disagreements, that's fighting and quarreling, as those that are in the midst of battle and wars. But he says, where do they come from? What is the source of this stuff? He says, I'll tell you what it is. These are coming out of your insides, out of your heart, where the passions, your own passions, are at war within you. What passions, what is he talking about here? We're talking about desires. We're talking about pleasures and passions. We're talking about the things that please you, the things that you want to do to please yourself, the things that make you comfortable or happy or satisfied. What is that for you? What, what does it mean to please yourself? In this context... If you remember back in verse 14 and 16, we just read this, he is specifically pointing us a clear line to jealousy and selfish ambition. We, we covered this last week, but it doesn't mean that these are the only two things that are possibly going on in their hearts. This just happens to be what James's congregations have embraced. And I'd say one step further than that is that these are the seed sins that produce all kinds of wickedness. So he says, I'll tell you why you're fighting. You've got your own agenda and desires going on and warring within yourself. You may not say it so clearly or out loud to others, but the real problem is that you have things in your heart that you want. And the rest of the people that you're with, they have things in their heart that they want. And the really unfortunate thing is none of those things are the things that the king wants. And so the problem then is, what do we have? Instead of everyone having a unified agenda, we're at each other's throats, quarreling, fighting even to the sake of murdering. Uh, they just happen to be the things that James' congregations have embraced, but they, they yield all kinds of stuff. 
James gives us two examples here. Number one, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Number two, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James shows us in this first one, this first case, that the desires are inside of us and they cannot be fulfilled properly. They don't ever come to fruition. They, they never work out. And we, we never get what we truly long for, these passions. And so, eventually, we take action on the outside. It no longer stays right here. In the first case, you desire to have, but you can't, so you murder. James is pulling us aside and telling us, hey, this envious strife that's building up in your life and it's bound up in your heart will eventually have its ultimate end in murder. It will act outside of your own thoughts and your own heart. It's bigger than that and it will act out. The desires that war in your heart will war and fight and battle to remove those things that stand in its way. It wants to clear it out because it wants its line to go right to what it wants. These desires hate anything that get in the way of the fulfillment including people. We think James is a bit dramatic to use the word murder. It's awfully dramatic to use something like this. I'd say, first of all, though, this could have been a real thing for his people that he was working with. But second, and I think more importantly, James is learning from Jesus. Remember Matthew 5, 21 through 30. Jesus taught us that the one who hates is liable to the same judgment as the one who murders. And he puts a whole new spin helping us understand the length of that hatred that's bound up in your heart. This mounting hatred is an outworking then of a heart bent on its own gain. These things that are inside are now having its fingers come out and reach to other things, cause quarrels, hatred, murderous hate. In the second case, you want something and you can't obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. What's on the inside, these evil desires, these self-serving passions will come out and manifest themselves as ugly, quarreling, pettiness, and, and hatred for your brothers. That, that is why you're quarreling and fighting. What's going on inside is starting to come out because you have uncontrolled evil passions warring inside of you. Desires for your own gain, for your own position, for your own possessions, for your own good. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But listen to what he says next. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's he talking about here? Like ask, receive, ask wrongly. Is James saying that if we only ask for our evil desires to be fulfilled to God, that he'll do it, he'll fulfill them? No, absolutely not. So, so what is he talking about? He is saying that you aren't even asking the way that a believer is supposed to ask. You know how to do that. How do I know that he says that? Because if you back to chapter 1, verse 5, James says that all who lack wisdom, which is all of us, all who lack wisdom should ask God for it. This is to be our request. The words that are used here in chapter 4, ask and receive, point us right back to chapter 1. And we see then James' command here in chapter 4 in context with what's going on in chapter 1. It helps us to understand that verses 5 through 8, James is making it clear that we are supposed to ask for wisdom. He is saying, you don't have all that you really need and want because you have not asked for the things that our Christians are supposed to ask for, what you really need and want. 
The foolish person then says, but I have asked. I have prayed. I mean, I've, I've asked God to give me success in my job. Uh, you know, I, I've asked him that he would help me receive that promotion that I so much deserve. I've asked him to keep me from financial ruin. And uh, I've asked him that he would give my kids success at school and in life. I mean, I've asked him that, that we'd be free from troubles and sickness and pain. And, uh, you know, I've, I've asked him that he would just bless all of my efforts. James's response to that, yeah, I hear all those things. They all come back to one similar denominator. You do not ask and receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, the things that matter to you, not to me and my kingdom, says Jesus. You're more concerned about spending my stuff, my resources, my wisdom on your own passions, on you. You've turned those things and asked wrongly for yourselves. Let's go back to chapter one again. When James commanded that we ask for wisdom, do you remember what his warning was that went along with it? I'm gonna read it. Verse five through eight says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We, we, we already read this in chapter one, that the way we ask exposes our hearts. The way that we ask goes right back to it and helps us realize what's going on, that our allegiance is divided. He says, don't think that you can ask and actually receive wisdom if you are going to ask with a doubting or an unfaithful heart. A double-minded man, one who has divided loyalties, God here and fill in the blank over here, whatever the thing is, most chiefly myself, but my allegiance is to God and to this, I'm double-minded. And that person will not receive anything. Now, come back to chapter four. The problem we're dealing with makes sense now from what James has already said in chapter one. You know why you don't receive? Receive, receive a word he just used in chapter one, because you're double-minded. You don't love and serve God only. You serve and love yourself. Your own passions, what you want. That's what you're gonna put your effort and time and prayers into. The things that most help you. It's no wonder that James can say, <laughs> you don't ask, and then clarifies what he means. You don't receive because you ask wrong and to spend it on your passions. Let's consider the context for a moment here. He, he is most likely highlighting that these people are indeed asking for wisdom. They're probably asking for the right thing. The problem is they're praying for it wrongly. How is it possible to ask for such a good thing, wisdom, how is it possible to ask for it wrongly, though? Although people, you know, through the centuries have framed James as this person who's very concerned about showing outward works, the truth could not be further from that. James is mostly concerned, not with outward conformity, but the heart. He's coming back to the source and saying, the real issue is, how are you asking for this thing? He's concerned about our motivations, Obviously, he wants us to ask for wisdom, but more importantly, he wants us to ask for wisdom in the spirit of meekness, with no doubting or unfaithfulness of our allegiance, not for the sake of jealous desire or selfish ambition, but for the sake of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. These are the things he tells us to ask for. If selfish ambition and jealousy define our hearts, it will shape our prayers. 
It will make us ask in a certain way. And unless we've repented, the truth is we're asking for our own exaltation, which is really stark and really disturbing. I was talking with a few of our community group leaders from the past few weeks, and a, a common theme kept popping up for us. We're talking about how even good things, good things that are wonderful, can so easily be tainted by our sinful motivations. Um, there have been times, and unfortunately recent times, where I'm praying, and uh, I'm really feeling pretty good about myself that I'm praying. Or I'm, I'm sitting down to read my Bible, and I'm really pounding away. I'm like, man, I'm really disciplined to read my Bible. This is good. Or, just getting real with you guys, I'll be preaching. In the midst, I subtly give myself a little pat on the back for really nailing a point well, really getting it, and I get a few head nods from it. Yeah, you want to see the wickedness of my own heart? Even in the act of preaching Christ, stuff is coming up underneath and showing my own wicked heart and pride. And I'm not the only one, guys. I know. I know your hearts are the same way, wicked through and through, because the Scriptures tell us that that's true. And so we see that these things are terrible inside of us, these passions and desires that end up controlling what's really going on. And, and don't get me wrong, I have plenty of ugly desires too. They're not all great and happy and nice looking. But I, I, I bring this up to show us that he, we are so prone to wander that we take good things and we turn them for our own gain, for our own pride, our own renown. Somehow we want us to be on that throne, not Jesus. We want us to get that glory, not Jesus. We've now come to the point where James has finished explaining the reason for quarreling, wars and battles. Now he's ready to talk about the next subject here. He's ready to look at how this positions us before God. We've come to verse four. Let's take a look. What does God say about those who have embraced demonic wisdom, those who are foolish, those who allow selfish ambition and jealousy to rule their hearts? Verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He stares them down and literally says to them, adulteresses. Adulteresses, the feminine plural. Adulteresses, all of you. He is singling out those who have not asked for wisdom from above or who have asked for it but only for the purpose of feeding it and spending it on their own passions. This is not a light term to be throwing around. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's not a good term to be throwing around and call someone an adulteress. I wouldn't recommend you go out and do it today. You can take it on yourself because this is true, but don't give use it for some other people. In the first chapter of Hosea, verse 2, the Lord says to Hosea, Hosea, go take a wife of whoredom. This isn't a complicated command, but it is very surprising. Hosea is to marry a woman who is known for fornication, a woman who is known for her sexual acts. This is most likely a woman who is a prostitute, one who is, sells her body and sexual services to the highest bidder. That is the way that God describes Israel in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, the Lord deviates. He changes the designation that he early said. He tells Hosea to go back to the same woman and buy her back. But this time, he uses a new word for her. 
He says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. He does not say, go get your wife of whoredom. He says, go get your adulteress. The first name is bad. The second name is far worse. The first name, a wife of whoredom, points to a lifestyle of sin, a lifestyle that is willing to compromise, to get by, a lifestyle that does not take sexual purity seriously. But the second name, adulteress, does all the same things I just described, but add to that the fact that this person has entered into a marriage covenant and has despised it. The adulteress has not taken her vows, her sacred vows, seriously. We are talking about the most sacred and important covenant between two human beings. And this covenant is tossed aside for one's own pleasure, for the sake of fulfilling the selfish desires that are warring inside a person's heart. How am I to dwell in unity with this person who I love and I've married, loving and cherishing and knowing and serving them? This person says, doesn't matter. I want what I want. And this person, they just aren't cutting it for me. And so I'll go do what I want to do. I'm willing to break the covenant that I have with this person, the covenant I've made so seriously before God in order to get what I want. Do you realize the seriousness of this statement, calling them out as adulteresses? James isn't being dramatic. He's not using flowery language. He's revealing the severity of sin. He's showing us the horrendous consequences of anti-wisdom. The Christian who holds this demonic wisdom, that which is full of jealousy, selfish ambition, and pride, has broken their vow of covenant faithfulness to God. They have adulterated themselves out for their own desires. Look at what he says next. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Guys, you're playing by the world's rules. You're not pursuing friendship with God, valuing things like peace and meekness and gentleness and a bridled tongue, humbling yourself and asking for wisdom. Instead, you're pursuing all the same things that the world pursues. Think about the sins that James has already highlighted. Discrimination against certain people, a fiery and bitter tongue, bitter envy, selfishness, jealousy, ambition, and this pursuit of evil desires. This behavior, it betrays you. You are acting just like the world, that ungodly system that is against God. And God tolerates no rivals. By their actions, they have proven it. It's just not the thing that they really thought they were proving. It's the exact opposite. They have shown that their faith does not show itself in works done in meekness of wisdom, but rather it shows that they have a divided heart, one that has allegiance to God and allegiance to the world, all the things that the world loves. God will not be toyed with. He will not be one of many lovers, especially as he has gone to great lengths to purchase his bride through the blood of Christ. You don't love God. You love the world. And if you don't already know this, this is a true saying. Friendship with the world, loving the world, is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This statement ought to stop us in our tracks and like repent on the spot. 
Whenever you and I begin to allow our evil desires to take root in our hearts, and when we start desiring to act the way that the world acts by putting ourselves on that throne, me, number one priority, we are making ourselves enemies of God. It's not some sneaky work by the devil who has made us an enemy of God. It's not the world who's come in and used their systems to make us an enemy of God. James tells us that we are making ourselves an enemy of God. When we choose to do that, we have done that. But James isn't finished. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, do you think it's just some kind of silly saying that God jealously desires to have us? Do you think that this statement is worthless, like it doesn't matter? Like it doesn't matter that this isn't actually true about God? It is. It's thoroughly true, like a perfect and faithful husband who loves his bride and cherishes her. He will not give her up to anyone. He yearns jealously for his bride, for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is a jealous, covenant-keeping God intent on making this marriage work. You think that God is just okay with your adultery, what he calls adultery, like just a small thing? You think it's excusable? You know, like a, a little pride, a little selfish ambition. They aren't really that bad. I mean, no one can see them. They're just, they're just bound up in my heart. It's okay. Think again. Adulteresses is what he says. God will be no one's willing cockled. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so James calls out all who pervert themselves and adulterate themselves and would even be willing to ask God for the resources to spend on their own wicked passions. What gall that we would have that kind of guts to say that to God. God, would you give me this so I can serve myself? Now, so let's get real for a minute. Let's get like Monday through Saturday real. What, what does this look like? It's easy to point the finger at other people in this. What kind of jealousy, selfish ambition, or desires do you have warring inside yourself that cause you to unwittingly make yourself an enemy of God? Are you jealous of others, Christians or non-Christians? Maybe you, you never say, I want that thing. I really want that thing but it manifests itself in other ways. Perhaps you have a chip on your shoulder against people who just have things that come so easily to them. They just touch things and it turns to gold. You guys know the people I'm talking about, and you just struggle with that. Ugh, I just want to have that ability. Or maybe you're jealous of those who make more money than you do. Or maybe you're jealous of those who had a great Christian upbringing. They had a great opportunity in a good Christian family, and they're way ahead of you spiritually, seemingly. Are you jealous of that? Or maybe you're jealous because some people just have better gifts than you do. Maybe you're jealous of people who have been blessed with children and you haven't. Maybe you're jealous of those that have made better choices early on in their life and they're on this good path to success. Maybe you're jealous that some people don't struggle with the sin that you struggle with. Maybe you're jealous of someone who has a really wonderful spouse and you don't. What is it that you're jealous of? Fill in the blank. Go ahead. And the answer will always be the same. The desire is wicked and makes you an enemy of God. What's your ambition? Let's talk about more of a respectable sin for a minute. Uh, is anyone in here a control freak? 
or maybe you disguise it really well, but you're really upset when things just don't go your way. Most of us are kind of okay with that. Like, like it's, it's an acceptable thing. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of a control freak, but, you know, they're trying to do the right things. They got things in line. They know what's going on. You know, they're trying to, they have it together. They try to keep things in order. They're trying to do the right things and get them done. Control freaks, do you trust that God is actually in control? Or do you take every step to ensure that the proper result is accomplished? Or do you take control of the situation and then get frustrated and anger pops out of you because it didn't go according to your plan? In fact, it may end up that when people see what you're doing and they, or they fail to see it and they fail to execute on your plan, you quarrel and you fight at them. That's right, I said at them. Is this a passion that possibly wars in your heart? What kind of desires do you have that you have turned to serve yourself? This, this one's really easy. I mean, you have an idea here of the jealousy and selfish ambition. Let's go a little broader and cast the net wide. What ambitions or what desires do you have in your heart that don't line up into those things, but you know you've turned for your own good? What kind of desires are you into? What kind of things that you've turned good things from God and you've pointed them toward yourself? How about sex? The wonderful act God gave us in the beauty of marriage, a beautiful and wonderful thing. You change it to be a self-serving, a getting thing, a self-serving desire that wants to get pleasure, whether emotional or whether it's physical. How about money? The love of it, which is the root of all kinds of evil, Guys, resources are good. <laughs> Money is a good thing to have and to be able to use. It's a God-given gift. But we can so easily change it. And we can turn it to provide for us. It can, we can use it to provide for us ease and pleasure and status and security. And it becomes our treasure. And it becomes the thing that actually governs our heart. How about this one? This is going to sound weird. Responsibility a God-given thing. One may sound strange, like I said, but God has given us things to manage, to subdue, to lead well. This is our things we should do. But do you ever take these things and turn these concerns into worries or anxieties? We get so concerned about these things that they overtake our confidence in God and cause us to bear our own burdens as if the best thing for us to do, the most holy thing for us to do, is to bear this on our back and trudge through it. That is adultery. Do you realize that you're taking God's work away from him and you're putting on your own back? Who do you think you are? Your anxiety, your worry is sin. It is adultery against God. It shows that you have more confidence in yourself than you do in our God. God causes us to see him in this light. And when we see him in this light, we realize that he is the one that can handle this stuff. And we realize how small we are. The foolishness that I'm talking about, the anti-wisdom says that somehow I fit the bill of God and that I should do those things that he's supposed to do. Don't turn to yourself to bear this burden. Turn to your maker and your covenant God. He has told us to cast all of our anxieties on him. There are many other things I could mention here. Uh, maybe for you it's food. Maybe for you it's comfort. 
Maybe for you, it's leisure. Maybe for you, it's just being right. And you turn all these good things into your own idols, and they serve you. Brothers and sisters, whenever we live with jealousy, selfish ambition, or evil desires, whenever we allow these things to take root in our hearts, we are making ourselves enemies of God. And our proper title is adulteresses. But what one of us has not done this? Which one of us, according to James' definition, is not an adulteress? We need to recognize that our sin is serious. And we need to recognize it for what it is. It is spiritual adultery. Do you, do you guys feel that despair? <laughs> that depression state that's like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. I, I, there's, there's a part of that that's exactly right. And so, brothers and sisters, let us repent. Let us see God for who he is and repent of our sin and submit to a holy, loving, and jealous God for there is hope. Next week I'll be preaching 6 through 10, but I'm going to give you the first five of your words in verse 6. And I'll close with that and we'll pray. But he gives more grace. Let's pray. God, we see ourselves against you and we realize that we cannot measure up one sin has done a sin, but the reality is that we are a fountain of sin and self-pleasing. As your people, we see these things, and you, you, James has made it so clear to us, these little things that we think, the selfish ambition or pride or quarrels, we kind of think them as light things. They are not light things. They are adulterous things. And so we fall to you, asking that you would give us hearts of repentance and faith to trust you. And God, we smile at the end of all this knowing that there is hope in Christ, that you give more grace, that you make the sun to shine into our darkness. You call deadness to life. We worship you today. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has paid the price. May our wisdom be you and you alone. We have nothing in ourselves that we can bring to you to somehow earn the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.